I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2 will be in the first 10 verses of this chapter this morning as we continue our walk through uh, the book of Galatians. And today, as we look at God's confirmation, both of Paul's call and his gospel message, gospel confirmation, we'll see that the gospel, the one true gospel, is good news for all people. The one true gospel is good news for all people. So if you have a copy of God's word, I invite you to follow along silently as I read aloud Galatians chapter 2. Paul writes, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, now what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality. To those, I say, who seemed to be influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, received the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now as we read through that, one thing that jumps off the page is Paul is pretty good at writing long sentences. These kind of sentences, we call them Pauline because he sticks in different uh, parenthetical expressions or phrases to explain what he's talking about. And sometimes you kind of got to jump to follow the main line of his thought. Uh, but what he's telling us about is a meeting similar to one I experienced, it's almost 15 years ago now. Uh, Liz and I both had the privilege of being guinea pigs. We were the first in both of our respective families to get married, which meant that this was an experiment for both the Pegram and the Lugbill clans. And as you know, at events like this, you have, you know, kind of your, I'll say your core family, the, the, the people that live in your house, but then at weddings, you have People show up, you know, and that maybe you haven't seen for years, aunts, uncles, cousins, this kind of thing. And so we were at our rehearsal dinner, and it was my job to kind of introduce everyone, and I was giving it my best shot. Now, I'm okay at remembering names, and so I'm kind of flying through the room and just trying to remember everyone by name, but some of these people I had met very recently. Now, when you're trying to make a good impression on someone's family for the first time, you really want to nail it. And so I'm going through, and I'm thinking, home run, home run, home run, home run. And then, as I'm going along, I introduce Aunt Karen, Liz's Aunt Karen, to the room. And then I see my father-in-law whispering something at me, you know, and I'm, I can't quite hear what he's saying. Carolyn, 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 Aunt Carolyn. I messed up Aunt Carolyn's name. There is no Aunt Karen. There's only Aunt Carolyn. And so immediately, you know, like I'm flushed, and I just feel hot and, and nervous, and like we're in this moment, and thankfully Aunt Carolyn is a very gracious lady from Houston, and so she was willing to roll with it, 
But it wasn't my choice of early impression on the extended family. But part of the dynamic in that moment is not really up to anyone. It's not anyone's fault, but there's an awkward family meeting going on. Because there are kind of multiple triangulated relationships at multiple levels, and you're trying to navigate them all at once. And that's a little bit of what we have going on here in this chapter, in these verses. We've got an awkward family meeting, but it's a church family meeting. And it's a lot more awkward because Paul shows up and he has kind of a history, you might say. A reputation that he brings with him. And speaking of messing up names, one thing that I enjoy in this passage is that Paul doesn't even call Peter the same name all the way through. He calls him Peter and Cephas. You've got his Greek and Aramaic names, and it's kind of like, man, that must be even more confusing. And so what we're, what we're doing here is we're giving a little bit of insight into Paul. After he's spent some time away, he comes and he meets all these church leaders, and they're introduced to each other. And he tells us about some of this initial awkwardness and, and what it's like as they get to know one another. And as we did last week, we've got two layers of conversation going on here. One of these layers is Paul's apostolic ministry. In other words, what it means for him to have unique authority in the church and as it affects his gospel message. But then you've got some other things that are going on that are just how the gospel affects and displays the unity that we have in Christ. So as we walk through this passage together, we're going to do it in two primary steps. First, we're going to see the story itself. In other words, the story that Paul tells, we'll kind of work our way through the text quickly that way. And then we'll consider some implications of this story as we seek to understand it. So today's story, if you didn't catch it in the first verse there, vaults us 14 years forward into the future from Paul's conversion. As Paul travels to Jerusalem now for an extended visit, a second time, and he meets with the apostles. And this first chapter introduces us to this kind of initial inspection that Paul receives. Verse 2 tells us that Paul goes to Jerusalem because God told him to. He went up because of a revelation. An important part of this meeting is this meeting between Paul and Peter, James, and John. Now this is probably not James, one of the disciples. It's probably James, the brother of Jesus, who by this time is a well-known, very visible leader in this early church in Jerusalem. So for 14 years, Paul has been preaching the gospel among the Gentiles. And now he's back in the heart of Judaism. And he walks into this meeting with the most influential leaders in this church in Jerusalem. Now, Paul's reputation by this time, after more than a decade, is clearly established. So, in a sense, in a sense, it's not Paul who's under the microscope. He's not killing Christians anymore. But his message is now under the microscope. What is it that he teaches? So he says, I set before them privately the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. And here we have a hint of what the big question is. Is the gospel for the Jews the same as the gospel for the Gentiles? And an early attack comes in the second chapter of this story as other people in this church resist Paul's ministry because his gospel is for the Gentiles. Verse 3 introduces us to one of the major questions, not just of this passage but of the entire early church in fact if you were to read the account in acts chapter 15 of the jerusalem council the big question before them is what is required of gentiles becoming christians in other words what's the continuity between what's required under the old covenant and the new 
must a believer be circumcised? And so one thing that kind of passes by us quickly, but that's really important, is Paul names two of his companions that are with him. Did you catch their names? Barnabas and Titus. Now one thing that may not jump right out at us is you just hear those names because, you know, if you read your Bible, they're not uncommon Bible names. They're somewhat frequent in the life of Paul, is they have very distinct characteristics. So imagine with me that we're not members of Ashley River Baptist Church, but we're a century ago and we're members of First Baptist Church in downtown Charleston. And the way things work at this time in segregation is that there are people that sit on the ground floor and there are people that sit in the balcony. And imagine that one of these people that shouldn't walk into the ground floor, walks down and sits on the front row. Some people are immediately uncomfortable. Others perhaps are angry. Perhaps someone is even tempted to confront this person. You see, that, my friends, is Titus. Titus doesn't belong here. Paul and Barnabas are good, faithful Jews. Titus is a Gentile. Titus is other. He's not allowed here. You see, these congregations don't mix. He's culturally and ethnically different from not only the church in Jerusalem, but also Paul and Barnabas. So it's possible to accept Paul and Barnabas, but not accept Titus. Titus 1 verse 4, a letter that Paul writes to Titus, tells us that Titus is his true child in the faith. In other words, he's an early convert of Paul's ministry. Titus comes in. He's not circumcised. He doesn't have the right pass card. Because Genesis 17 tells us that circumcision is a mark of God's people under the Old Covenant. So all the Jews, including Paul and Barnabas, have received this mark, but not Titus. Well, this brings up this question, and it's quite the conflict in this early church. But Colossians 2 tells us something important. Something has changed. Between that time when God told Abraham what everyone was to do, and now, Colossians 2, you see, tells us, in Christ, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. In other words, the sign of God's people in the old covenant was circumcision. But in the new covenant, that sign is now what? It is now baptism. The sign has changed. And the question is, does Titus need both signs? Or will one do? Now the church doesn't have unified opinions on this. But one reason that we practice here at Ashley River Baptist Church, believers' baptism, is because that's what's commanded in the New Testament. In fact, as you walk through Scripture, the only examples you can find of people being baptized are those who have already placed their faith in Christ and then baptized into Christ. But if you think about this, and this is a question not just for this early church, but it's a question that somewhat exists in the broad church, capital C Church today, is what about the children? In other words, what do we do with children who are born into believing homes? What about them? Well, we're going to dig a little deep here, but hang with me if you will. Circumcision was the sign of the Old Covenant. It happened on the eighth day after you were born. You were very young. So it must include children. 
But the nature of the new covenant is different. It's different from the old covenant. Where's the old covenant written? On tablets of stone. Where's the new covenant written? Well, Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31 tell us it's written on our hearts. In other words, there is an entrance into this covenant, but it's a different kind of covenant from the old covenant. The nature of the new covenant is completely different from the old. So there's continuity within God's salvation plan. What God planned at the beginning, he finished at the end. But Jeremiah 31 tells us this new covenant is completely different in nature from the old, both in form and in its effects. So all the ceremonies and sacrifices in the old covenant, sacrificing lambs, goats, oxen, where do they find their fulfillment? Well, we get to the New Testament and they find their fulfillment in Christ. In other words, you may or may not like what I wear to preach on Sunday mornings, but no one is measuring the length of my robes or making sure I have the right tassels on them. Because we see those things fulfilled in Jesus Christ. They were old covenant. The new covenant has seen those things fulfilled. There has been one great final sacrifice for sin. Sufficient for everyone, but effective only for those who place faith in Christ. So what's the nature of this new covenant? It's a spiritual covenant received by faith. The law of God, as Jeremiah says, written on our hearts. Baptism, then, is the sign of this spiritual covenant. And this sign is for all the people of God. But how is it that we become members of this covenant people? It's not through physical birth into a Jewish family. It is through spiritual birth into God's family through faith in Christ. So this sign, baptism, is for God's covenant people. But his covenant people are those who have placed faith in Jesus. Baptism is a sign of the new covenant. But we become God's people through faith. So God's people now are not those born physically, but those born spiritually through faith in Christ. And these people born into God's family are those who receive the sign of the covenant, which is baptism. So, if you are someone who has placed your faith in Christ, the outward sign that people see of an inward spiritual reality is baptism. But it's a sign of what is taking place in our hearts. Okay, now back to our story. Titus has received the sign of the new covenant, baptism. But he has not received the sign of the old covenant, circumcision, conflict. So there's an effort in verse 4 by some people, false brothers or literally pseudo-Christians, to require that Titus be circumcised. Now these pseudo-Christians are people who claim faith in Christ, they're visible members of this early church, They're accepted by the church as true Christians, but they're not true Christians. So if they claim to be Christians, if on the outside they look like Christians, how do we know they're not true Christians? Well, we know they're not really followers of Christ because of the way they live. In particular, these pseudo-Christians 
are here, Paul says, to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. Now imagine with me this morning that you're five years old. Now for some of you, that's a rather distant memory. So track back in time, five years old. And mom says, Joshua, I want you to go clean your room. Now, if you clean your room at age five, like I cleaned my room at age five, it just mostly involved moving stuff around, perhaps into the closet, under the bed, hiding it anywhere I could hide it. And so say you're there in your room for half an hour and you've spent 28 of these 30 minutes playing and you hear mom coming up the steps. Immediately, you're looking for all the best hiding spots all the best places to cover up what you haven't been doing for the last 30 minutes because mom is coming to inspect. And that's what goes on here. These are people, when he says they spy out our freedom, it's claiming the right to supervise the way Paul, Barnabas, and Titus live out their Christianity. It's claiming the right to supervise what someone else does. But in this case, they don't have that right. It's not mom coming to inspect the room. It's pseudo-Christians claiming to inspect the genuine faith of real Christians. Well, what kind of hearing does Paul grant to bossy church members who don't display spiritual fruit but claim the right to tell them what to do? Verse 5. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. He doesn't try to make them happy. He doesn't seek to appease them. He says, not a chance. Take your petty complaints elsewhere. We do not have time for them here. They don't belong in the true church among true Christians. Well, why is this so important? Well, in verse 4, Paul links their demands to what he calls our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. Then verse 5, to the truth of the gospel. Well, how does getting circumcised or not getting circumcised undermine the truth of the gospel? You can be circumcised or not. That's a freedom. It's a choice that you're free to make or to not make. So the problem isn't the act. The problem is the attitude behind the act. It seems that these pseudo-Christians are acting as if circumcision is necessary to be a real Christian. And Paul says, don't yield to this line of thinking even for a moment. Well, I don't know when the last time I heard a lively debate about circumcision was. Now, perhaps you have, but not I. So, if that's not it for us... How might we be tempted to add to what's required to be a genuine Christian? Not that the act that we're talking about is or isn't, does, makes or doesn't make you a Christian, but that we believe it's what's required. I don't think we actually have to look very far. Now, I'm unapologetically pro-life unapologetically pro-biblical morality, generally pro-limited government. Now, I don't say this because I think it's my job to, it's, it's definitely not my job to proclaim politics primarily here. I'm a herald of the gospel, 
a herald of this book. I'll die for those, but not for some political party. The first two things, life, morality, they're clear in Scripture. The last seems practically wise, but not Bible. But you can vote for a Democrat and be a Christian. The Republican Party isn't the party of mere Christianity. I have pro-life Christian friends who generally vote Democrat. Strong Christians who live out their convictions. Now, look, I can't get there. But to equate the gospel with a political party is to undermine the truth of the gospel. So to imply that a true Christian could not vote for a candidate different, different than the one I believe is wisest is taking an issue of wisdom and conscience and making it an issue of gospel verification. This is wrong. It is undermining the truth of the gospel. It is spying out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. It's pastoral malpractice for a pastor to do it, and church members shouldn't do it either. Of course you should vote your convictions. But we should also be really careful about what we require of other professing Christians. While seeking to inform our convictions by Scripture and never compromising the truth of God's word. So in the end, in spite of the confusion and the internal conflict, perhaps that some of us feel right now, the church at Jerusalem welcomes Paul as a brother in arms in the same gospel. So stage three is affirmation and cooperation. Verses six through 10, Paul and the leaders in the Jerusalem church recognize that they've been entrusted with the same gospel, but they're taking the same message to different audiences. Verse 7, they saw that I've been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised and Peter to the circumcised. Peter, James, and John, verse 9 tells us, are the pillars of this church. So they seek to reach the Jews. Paul and Barnabas, on the other hand, seek to reach the Gentiles. It's the same gospel, the same mission, different target audiences. Well, what then are the implications of this? Why does Paul take the time to lay this out and what does it mean for us? In other words, what is the moral of the story, you might say? Well, the first is this. There is only one gospel, but it is a gospel for the whole world. Now, there are many facets to this one essential message. And the essential message is this. There is one way to God, and that is through faith in Christ. You see, there is a creator God, the one who spoke all things into being. The one who, Job said, shall not the judge of all the earth do right. And we are all accountable to this creator judge. But our first father and mother, Adam and Eve, entering this good creation, broke God's one commandment, and in doing so broke the goodness of creation. So Romans 5 tells us that every subsequent person born into this world is born a sinner. We're sinners by birth and by choice. And we fall short of God's glory. And into creation enters a human being unlike any other, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And Jesus lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we deserve to die and rose again so that we might have life through him. This is the gospel message. 
And our response to it is to turn from our sin to faith in Christ and Christ alone. If you're here and you haven't received this message, you've accepted some other form of pseudo-Christianity or some other message, would you turn from your sin and trust Jesus today? In Paul's day, in Peter's day, it was Jews and Gentiles. It would be hard to find two groups of people with greater differences. Yet both groups receive and believe the same gospel. And here we sit 2,000 years later preaching the same gospel that Paul preached. And because it's the same gospel, we must resist any attempt to change the true gospel. Paul's really clear. We don't yield even for a moment to those who threaten the purity and clarity of the gospel. You see, the implication seems to be not just that they require circumcision, but they seem to think it's necessary to actually be a Christian, necessary for salvation. And so we think about the purity of the gospel, we think about the words of the gospel, and that's one aspect of it. But what is this attack on the gospel? It's a lifestyle choice. It's not actually the words. It's a lifestyle choice. So we lock ourselves in on guarding the purity of the gospel in word and in living. It's possible, and it often happens, that people undermine the gospel with their words. They hide the necessity of repentance. They bury the hook of the fact that we're all sinners. They try to undermine the holiness of God. But we can also undermine the gospel by the way we live. In fact, next week we'll see Paul call out Peter pretty hardcore for doing that. There are many professing Christians today who live with a dichotomy we don't find in Scripture. A dichotomy that says, we can love Jesus, but not Jesus' bride. Commitment to the gospel itself and commitment to the the community that the gospel produces are the same. You see, the gospel message produces a gospel community of people filled with the gospel. Because the gospel forms this community. There is simply no category. I mean, you can look and look in your Bible, but you will not find it. A category for a professing believer who is not committed to and submitted to a local church. Just doesn't exist. Thirdly, we must know and articulate The true gospel. Now, this one is rather obvious, isn't it? Well, I say it's obvious, but it's not really obvious. Because many professing Christians can't clearly articulate the good news of Jesus. And this is something that we as a church, it is core to who we are. So it is what we do. We know this gospel. We are changed by this gospel. We live out this gospel. We speak this gospel. Now, there are many forms that this can take. The form that I often use, that I just used a few minutes ago, I follow an outline, God, us, Christ, response. I think about those four categories. Another way of doing it is creation, fall, redemption, restoration, telling the story of how God has worked throughout redemptive history. Growing up, I learned something called the Romans Road. Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, Romans 10, how someone becomes a Christian. You can follow the story of the gospel through verses in John. John 3, 
John 10, Jesus the good shepherd, we enter by the door. Or you can look at verses throughout scripture about how someone becomes a Christian. But if we don't know the gospel, we can't read. We don't know our ABCs. It's, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, of first importance. We must know this message. So it can be any one of these forms or other forms. But this message is a message we must know. Now, as we think about this, as we think about the gospel in our lives, I want to do this carefully because there are many, many complex layers to this. But think for a moment about the way we have taught and understood the gospel, particularly about the fruit of our children's and youth ministries. Now, I don't mean our current ministry to young people. I mean the fruit of what we've done in the past, not how many attended VBS in the 80s, but where those children are today. The children's program is something that historically our church has taken great pride in. But we're not talking about today so much as we're talking about the fruit of the past couple of generations. In other words, where are my peers? Where are the people who are raised in our children's ministry and taught the gospel here? Now we trust and believe and know that some of them are in other local churches. But we must teach our young people that the gospel is more important than games or treats or activities. The gospel is at the center of all we do. Now one thing we're evaluating as a staff is how we make effective disciples from the very earliest stages of life. And one thing that's very evident scripturally as well as practically is that the most important thing for our children is that their parents know and love Jesus. And teach their children to know and love and follow Jesus. So rather than thinking, how can we attract the children, our focus needs to shift to how can the faith of our parents be so compelling that children can't help but be attracted to Jesus. Corporate worship is where healthy children's ministry begins. The family... The gospel lived out through the faith of parents is where children are drawn to Christ. So we must know and live out, articulate the true gospel. Fourthly, this gospel, the one gospel, is the only way to true unity. The gospel takes people who are nothing alike and gives them the most important thing in common. In the first few verses, it's Titus being accepted by the church. In the last verses of this passage, it's Recognizing that the true gospel is what saves Jew and Gentile alike. Now, if you haven't noticed, we live in a regularly divided age. We live in a country that's mostly split right down the middle. You can tip it one way or the other, but half of the people here disagree with you. Not here, but I mean, maybe. But uh, half the people in our nation. But as that happens, people seem to crowd further and further toward the poles. And we cannot compromise one iota of God's truth. But what if we said that God's truth governed not only our positions, but also our dispositions? In other words, the way that we related to these positions. 
And God's children become known for truth, but also for loving and serving. So when the truth of God's word cuts against the grain of our culture, it also cuts the grain of our nature and changes the way we relate to our culture. I truly believe the best way to change the abortion industry, violence, racial tension, the disintegration of healthy families, is for God's people to lead with the gospel itself and display the fruit of the gospel as we do so. So to storm a building while holding a Jesus saves flag is a syncretism that combines nationalistic fervor that clouds and undermines the gospel itself. When scripture does address our relationship to the broader culture, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Romans 13, that's Jesus. Romans 13, Paul says, every authority is ordained by God. But take a moment sometime, and maybe you could do it in your Bible reading plan this year, and look at the amount of weight that the Bible gives to relating to our political environment, which is some, and compare that to the weight the Bible gives to loving the church, knowing the gospel, living out the gospel in our relationships. What you will see is that the gospel and the community that it produces are at the heart of God's word. And compare the weight that God's word gives to these things with the weight that our worries, our cares, and our words demonstrate. So we must know the gospel. Because the gospel changes how we love the world. Verse 10 tells us we can't separate the root of the gospel from the fruit of the gospel. They asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now the context here is likely churches in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem that have been devastated by famine. We see a number of times in Paul's letters where they're caring for these churches that have nothing. They're devastated. Now, caring materially for the poor isn't the gospel. In other words, everyone could have enough to eat, enough to drink, food, shelter, clothing. But if they don't know Christ, we haven't taken care of their greatest need. But the church has been known throughout our history For ministry to the poor, ministry to the orphan, ministry to the widow, the refugee. Hebrews 11 characterizes us as immigrants, pilgrims in this world. It's Christians throughout history who have started hospitals. Christians throughout history have started missions to the poor, dental clinics today throughout the world. Now, if you're like me, starting a hospital isn't on your to-do list this week. But loving and serving those far from God with the gospel of God is... It's the responsibility of every Christian to do for one person what we wish we could do for all. So who is God placing within your circle of influence that needs your care? And how can you use practical love, these good deeds, caring for the poor, as a platform to share the gospel with that person? God doesn't call us all to do this in the same way, but God calls all of us to love the world with the good news of Jesus. Let's take a minute now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God privately, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now.
God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the life and testimony of Paul. God, even for seeing how in the early church they were battling with how to understand relating the gospel to the world around them. But also how careful Paul was to guard the gospel itself, whether that's in our words or in our living. Lord, I pray that you help us be people that are known for being vessels that carry the good news of Jesus Christ. That when people encounter us, they will encounter Christ in us. That they'll see the fruit of the Spirit that is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, kindness. Lord, as we live this out, our faith will be compelling because Christ has changed us. The love of Christ controls us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll close our service together.